This episode is part two of a two-part series. If you haven't yet listened to part one, please do so now. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. 911, what's your emergency? Stay with 1794. Minnehaha Avenue. Minnehaha, someone's trying west. Somebody's trying to break in our home. Back on April 25th, 2010, an intruder broke into Heidi and Nick Ferkus's home, leaving Heidi deceased from a single gunshot wound to the back and Nick with superficial injuries from a shotgun blast to his leg. Heidi's autopsy would reveal that there was no exit wound, that the shotgun pellets had expanded and ruptured her vertebrae, left and anterior ribs, as well as her left lung. The manner of death in this case was subsequently ruled a homicide. Even though Nick Ferkus had agreed to meet with Sergeant Gray again after his first police interview, he'd since had a change of heart. Per his father's advice, the Ferkuses hired an attorney, at which point Nick's lawyer advised him to immediately cease all communication with the St. Paul police. This came after he'd been asked to come in and help draw a police sketch using Nick's description of the supposed suspect and home invader. Although he declined, Being the church-going gentleman that Nicholas Ferkus was, he would make a compromise. He and his attorney offered to come up with their own sketch by working with an independent artist, but it would take them a few weeks to do so. Two weeks after Nick's wife Heidi was killed, St. Paul detectives returned to the Ferkus residence to reconstruct the crime scene. 6.16 a.m. April 27, 2010. We're in the bedroom looking at the hallway. As they record this portion of the investigation with what appears to be an old-school Sony Handycam camcorder, investigators roll the tape at the exact time Nick said that he heard a door rattling downstairs. In the footage, the reflection of a detective can be seen in Heidi and Nick Ferkus's bedroom mirror. He holds the camera toward the open door and into the hallway, before retracing the exact steps Nick said he and Heidi took just moments before she lost her life. Okay, we're in the bathroom by the bathroom sink looking at the hallway. As one detective holds the camera from just outside of Nick and Heidi's bedroom, Sergeant Gray is outside of the home standing at the front door. He then begins fiddling with and shaking the doorknob, recreating the noise Nick said that he had heard the morning of the attack. The doorknob is heard loud and clear on the recording taken from the top of the stairs. This will eventually play a major role further on down the road when comparing this test to Heidi Ferkus's 911 call. On Tuesday, May 11th, 2010, 14 days after this police video was captured, Nick and his attorney went down to the St. Paul police station to drop off their sketch, one their hired artist had completed over the span of the last two weeks. It was during this visit that Nick agreed to provide detectives with a sample of his DNA along with his fingerprints. The drawing created by Nick Ferkus's contracted artist depicts a heavy-set black man appearing to be in his late 30s. The character in the grayscale picture is also seen with bulging eyes that are rather far apart. He's also got a distinctly wide nose and is wearing the infamous hooded sweatshirt drawn tightly over his head. 
With little else to go on, the police openly accepted the sketch as a potentially explosive piece of new evidence in the case. The image was widely publicized on CARE 11 and other Twin Cities television news stations. But incredibly, the first tip wouldn't come in until 2015, some five years after the sketch's initial release. By this point, Heidi Ferkus's case had gone ice cold, but an anonymous call from a St. Paul resident would bring renewed attention and energy to the investigation. The woman who called in the tip explained that she was absolutely certain she knew who the man depicted in the sketch was. It was a longtime local criminal, a man who went by the name of Michael Pye. Michael Pye had an extensive criminal history and was no stranger to St. Paul police, and it just so happened that breaking and entering was his specialty. Pye was homeless and had been arrested in the past for a string of burglaries targeting elderly St. Paul residents. In one incident, during the early morning hours on December 7, 2009, Pye broke through the front door of a home just four miles south of the Fergus residence on St. Paul Avenue. Once inside, he encountered the homeowner, an 81-year-old woman. Pye restrained the elderly woman by binding her hands and feet together before stealing several items from her home, including money and other valuables. In another incident, he forced his way inside the home of an 84-year-old woman, who was alone with her 4-year-old granddaughter. Before making his way through the house to steal several items of menial value, he tied up the woman and the small child, and then stole her cell phone and car while he made his escape. In a third terrifying incident that same December, Pi bludgeoned a 66-year-old man over the head with a 5-pound weight, and a failed burglary attempt. Michael Pye's mugshot had been widely publicized during this time period. Oddly enough, his inmate photo, taken as a result of those past burglaries, was almost identical to the sketch authorities received from Nick Ferkus. After seeing the undeniable likeness between the two photos, detectives finally thought they had their guy. There was just one problem. When authorities went looking for Michael Pye in 2015, they had no trouble finding him because he was already in prison, serving out a ten and a half year sentence for the kidnapping and burglary incidents we just told you about. Also, Heidi Ferkus was killed in April of 2010, but Michael Pye was first arrested on December 31st in 2009. Despite all of his targeted home invasions occurring within just a few miles of the Ferkus residence, there was no way that Michael Pye was the one who killed Heidi Ferkus because he was already behind bars at the time of her murder. Still, authorities wanted to speak with him, as the resemblance of his mugshot photo and the sketch the media were promoting were simply too uncanny to ignore. An investigator eventually showed Michael Pye the sketch. When he first saw it, he couldn't believe his own eyes, and said something to the effect of, That's me. But it couldn't have been, and it wasn't. There's no way Michael Pye could have killed Heidi Ferkus, unless he Shawshank redemptioned himself out of prison, committed the murder, and somehow managed to sneak back into his cell, all while going undetected. After hitting yet another major roadblock in the case, authorities were forced to come to terms with the fact that this was not their man. And again, Pye's mugshot wasn't just similar to Heidi's killer sketch, it was identical. But how could that be? It was at this point law enforcement began questioning where the inspiration behind this artistic masterpiece may have actually come from. By this point, just about everyone was well aware of the Ferkus's secret past financial troubles 
and had been for some time. The local paper even pressed a story about it, which presented the implication that perhaps her husband did have something to do with it. This allegation, in turn, created a divide within the St. Paul community. On the one side, you had Nick's friends and family, who never wavered in believing he was innocent, and that Heidi's killer was still out there somewhere. On the other hand, you had your skeptics, two of whom included Heidi's own parents. Heidi was also very close with her family, and if she truly knew what was going on, she undoubtedly would have asked them for help. And the fact that she never told her parents about the financial troubles that her and Nick were in just didn't sit right with them. As more time continued to pass, the more Heidi's loved ones became more concerned, worried that justice may never be served in the case. And while they had their suspicions about her husband, Nick, there wasn't a sufficient amount of evidence to prove that he did anything wrong or at least not enough to arrest him on suspicion of murder. There was never any third DNA profile lifted from that 2010 crime scene, but after all, Nick said that the killer was wearing gloves and was in and out of their house in a matter of seconds. Perhaps he was telling the truth. Whichever side of the fence you were on, several more years would pass with no additional leads as it pertained to the murder of 25-year-old Heidi Furcus. Meanwhile, Nick Ferkus remained completely silent and still hadn't spoken to police. Four years after she was killed, Heidi Ferkus's mother and father appeared on local television in 2014, hoping to spark new interest in the case that was already well on its way to becoming Minnesota cold forever. Well, it's certainly the biggest challenge we've ever faced. Just the loss of our daughter alone is um, something that's going to be with us forever. But there's these other layers to that that we're hoping to get some relief from. It's been difficult because of the, uh, the way that Heidi was taken. Sergeant Jake Peterson with the St. Paul Police was also interviewed for this broadcast, making yet another plea directed toward anyone who might have information about this unsolved crime. And we know there's someone out there, at least one person if not more, that knows exactly what happened. And we are hoping that that person or someone else will come forward and help us with this case. When you say at least one person, are you talking about Mr. Furcus? Well, we would love to sit down with, with Mr. Furcus again if, if he ever desires to do so. Nick Furcus was still not being publicly named a suspect, but no one seemed to know where he was. Local journalists couldn't reach him for comment and Heidi's own parents couldn't get in touch with him either. For all anyone knew, Nicholas Fergus had up and left, packed his bags, and skipped town. If you know anything about this incident, even if you think it's just a small, insignificant detail, St. Paul police want to hear from you. As it turns out, moving on was exactly what Nick Fergus had done. By the time this newscast aired across St. Paul, Minnesota, to virtually everyone's surprise, Nicholas Furcus had already been married to another woman for almost two years. Back in 2010, just a few months after Heidi Furcus was killed, her husband Nicholas Furcus would meet another woman named Rachel Watson. Rachel had just moved back to the St. Paul area after an ugly divorce with an abusive ex-husband. Rachel was the sister of one of Nick and Heidi Furcus's closest friends, which was how they were initially introduced. She was well aware of what Nick had been through and felt a sense of empathy for him, believing Nick's side of the story wholeheartedly just as most of their friends did. 
Rachel and Nick seemed to share a unique bond through the pain they'd both endured separately and prior to meeting with one another. Nick was a widower and Rachel a victim of domestic violence. Some of their friends thought it was a bit strange when Rachel and Nick got together, considering Heidi had just died several weeks before. But when you know, you know, I guess. In a bizarre coincidence, Rachel's birthday fell on April 25th, the very same day Heidi Furcus was murdered. Not exactly relevant here, just extremely odd, and we thought it was worth mentioning. Those strange details aside, Nick wasted no time in moving on, and in 2012, two years after his wife Heidi was killed, he and his new partner Rachel were married. But before they said, I do, Rachel had one request. She wanted to visit Heidi Ferkus's grave. To Rachel, it was a sign of respect. After all, she was about to marry the man Heidi once loved before her life was taken from her. Rachel was extremely emotional during that visit to the gravesite. Nicholas Ferkus, on the other hand, was not and didn't have very much to say at all. Nick and Rachel would go on to have three children of their own together. They moved into a different home not far from the one that had been foreclosed on years before on Minnehaha Avenue. This time, Nick's parents would help. Nick's credit was obviously destroyed, and at the time, Rachel's wasn't so great either, so they couldn't exactly get a mortgage by themselves. Nick and Rachel essentially paid the mortgage to Nick's father as the deed was under his name, so he had basically become their landlord, if you will. The newlyweds would also pay any other bills on top of this, including the property taxes. This was the agreement they had while Nick continued working for the family business cleaning carpets. Nick had assured his new bride that his poor money management was a thing of the past. According to Nick, he'd turned a new leaf. He told Rachel that he'd completed some kind of online course, a program where if you pay a certain amount of money, they help you clear your debt and you're essentially given a clean slate. It's unclear who paid for said program or if Nick actually ever did complete one at all, but that's what he told Rachel, and she believed him. The two went on to enjoy their life together for the next several years, while Heidi's family was still left out in the Minnesota cold without any answers. Every year around the anniversary of her death, Heidi's parents would contact St. Paul Police to see if there were any pertinent updates in regards to their daughter's murder investigation. Unfortunately, there was no news to give, and each year came and went. Still, every April they would call, and Nick Ferkus never once called, nor did he reach out to the family. It appeared Nicholas Ferkus was somehow able to put this entire tragic incident behind him. But a few years into his new marriage, Rachel began noticing some things about her new husband that she hadn't before. In a recent interview for an ABC 2020 episode on this case, Rachel shared how she started to pick up on Nick Ferkus's lies. Little things that most people wouldn't feel the need to lie about, like going out to eat at a restaurant when he told his wife that he didn't. On this particular occasion, Rachel found a food receipt on the floor of his car. When she confronted him about spending money, Nick said that one of his friends must have dropped it there. Rachel couldn't understand why Nick felt the need to lie about such a trivial thing, but she would more often than not just let it go, deciding not to make mountains out of molehills. As the years passed, the honeymoon phase eventually passed too. Inevitably, the romance in Nick and Rachel's relationship had dwindled down to near nothing. They were living under the same roof together, but became like ghosts to one another, going through the motions, and eventually, they wouldn't even talk. 
Then one day, history would ominously show signs of repeating itself, when Rachel found something in her husband Nick's sock drawer. It was a notice from the bank for delinquent property taxes on their home that hadn't yet been paid. Rachel couldn't believe it. Her mind began to race, her first thought being that of Heidi and how this same exact scenario had unfolded nearly a decade before, right before her untimely murder. Rachel also began receiving phone calls from collection agencies around this same time as well. And it was at this point she began fearing for her life. Only, she wasn't going to wait around for an explanation either. And so, in the middle of the night, Rachel Furcus gathered up her three kids and left the family home. This episode is proudly brought to you by BASE. Okay, airport-induced anxiety is a real thing, especially if you're lugging along a couple of small children and several bags. But when you travel with BASE, your bag has the function and the fashion to help keep you calm, carefree, and looking cute. That's important to me as a fully grown 38-year-old man. I've already talked about the BASE weekender bag. My wife absolutely loves it. But I just ordered two of the kids' backpacks. They are so cool and actually a little bit high-vis, which will help us see them in the airport better. Base was created by actress Shay Mitchell to make sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking fashionable. Base has thought of everything you could ever want in a piece of luggage. 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushion handle, built-in weight indicators, and even washable bags for your dirty clothes. Seriously, they've got an amazing selection of different styles and variety of different colors. And right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash invisible. Go to basetravel.com slash invisible for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash invisible. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It turns out Nick wasn't paying the bills again, and Rachel had no idea. Their arrangement was virtually identical to that of Nick and Heidi's. Nick always said he had it covered when it came to their finances, but after she found out the property taxes hadn't been paid, and while the kids were in a safe place... Rachel decided to confront Nick, but not in private. By now, she'd lost all trust in her husband, and so she decided to bring a friend with her on that visit back to their home. While there, Rachel secretly recorded her and Nick's conversation on her phone. She asked Nick that if she wasn't aware of their potential foreclosure, which is what happens if you don't pay your property taxes, then how could Nick expect her to believe that Heidi knew anything about their foreclosure either? At some point during the conversation, Nick said something to the effect of, You think I could kill my wife? To which Rachel responded, Yes. After what felt like minutes of long silence, Nick responded, quote, So I intellectually understand what you're saying. Uh, the fact that you're saying it is so indescribably jarring to my soul that uh, I can hardly breathe. 
I don't have words, Rach. It's, it's too traumatic, and I don't know what else to tell you. Nick Furcus isn't heard saying much else on the recording other than that he couldn't talk about it anymore and perhaps might at a later time. Rachel and her friend then leave the home, still without any answers. Eventually, Rachel would meet up with Nick again, this time with Nick's parents present. Rachel brought up the fact that circumstances surrounding what she had discovered in regards to their unpaid bills was concerning, especially considering how this all ended last time around with Heidi. In short, Nick's parents simply defended their son. In their eyes, he was no killer. Rachel secretly recorded that conversation as well. Not much was revealed during the discussion other than Nick continually denying to have anything to do with his late wife's death. Soon, Rachel would leave Nick Furcus for good, and the two were divorced in 2018. While the people of this community had already come to the sad realization long ago that this crime would more than likely never be solved, a fresh set of eyes would soon have another look. And while the case had never officially been closed, one year after Nick and Rachel's separation, Sergeant Nikki Sipes of the St. Paul Police Department took it upon herself to comb through the files once more almost nine long years after Heidi Ferkus's tragic murder. When Sergeant Sipes caught wind of Nick Ferkus's recent divorce, the very first person she wanted to speak with was Rachel. Rachel informed Sergeant Sipes about the delinquent property tax notice and explained how she felt she could have met the same fate as Heidi had had she stuck around. In 2019, Sergeant Sipes began putting together the pieces that had been shelved away in evidence for many years. She dove back into Nick and Heidi's financial records from 2010. In addition to the home that was being foreclosed upon back then, Nicholas Furcus had an exorbitant amount of debt. His personal bank account was negative $434 at the time Heidi was killed and had been closed by the bank months before the previous January. In 2010, he also owed that same bank $1,736 and approximately $17,400 more on an REI sporting goods store credit card. Running checks on both Heidi and Nick's credit revealed that between 2008 and 2009, Nick made over two times the amount of charges to their credit cards than Heidi ever did. Their insurance agent back then was a longtime friend of Heidi's parents. He said prior to meeting Nick... Heidi's car insurance was always paid on time. That same agent said that soon after they were married, Nick took over all of Heidi's insurance matters, and the agent never dealt with Heidi again after she and Nick tied the knot. At the time of Heidi's murder, her salary was just $30,000 a year. She was working for a financial services company called Securian. Her husband Nick was making $41,000 as the director of operations for his family's cleaning business. When they purchased the home in August of 2007 for $215,000, they used two separate mortgage loans. The monthly payment on the first primary mortgage was $1,300. The other was $250. In terms of the 2010 foreclosure, the last time a payment had actually been made on the home was September of 2008, roughly two whole years before Heidi was killed. After about seven months and still no payment, Nick was served the official foreclosure documents back in April of 2009. When the couple's insurance agent tried to contact Mr. Furcus in regards to that pending foreclosure, Nick told him it was all a big mistake. He said an audit was being conducted against the bank because a teller had been stealing his paychecks and not depositing them. 
Investigators also learned that no audit of the sort ever took place. The insurance agent didn't believe Nick's story of alleged fraud at the time, but chose not to intervene as Nick was embarrassed and clearly had enough problems as it was. Nick and Heidi's auto insurance policies had also been canceled, and their agent sent a non-payment notice to the house, but he never heard anything back, and assumed the couple had simply switched insurance companies by that point. Less than two months later, the Fergus home was sold at a sheriff's auction in June of 2009. Now, you've got to remember that the eviction process takes quite a long time. There's a lot of legal gymnastics the courts have to go through before a homeowner is officially thrown out on the streets. And there's often a lot of ways the parties involved will try to expedite that process. The very same month Nick's checking account was terminated back in January of 2010, he received a phone call. It was from the law firm handling the foreclosure. They offered him $4,000 cash to be out of the house in one month's time, which would have been February of 2010. They also proposed an alternative incentive, be out by March 20th and we'll give you $2,500. Nick ultimately said no, turning down both offers. But just because he failed to pay virtually all of his and Heidi's bills didn't mean he was going to deprive himself a little fun in the sun. Investigators learned that he and his wife Heidi left for Hawaii on February 12th of 2010, the same day the eviction process officially began. The couple went on a five-day trip, racking up approximately $3,400 in bills. A few weeks after Nick and Heidi returned home, an eviction hearing was held in court on March 8th of 2010. Nick Ferkus attended this hearing alone. At the time, he signed an agreement to vacate the property in 14 days, the eviction date was then set to March 22, 2010. Those legal documents were found by investigators inside of Nicholas Ferkus's unsecured car, not long after he was first interviewed by police. On March 10, 2010, Heidi and Nick toured two apartments at the Calhoun Beach Club in Minneapolis. Those listed units had rents of $1,400 to $2,200 per month. The agent from the property spoke with Heidi about her desire to sell their home and move to Minneapolis. But by then, her and Nick's house had already been sold at auction. Though they hadn't yet moved out, there was no house to sell. This was only one of many indications that Heidi had no idea of the financial hot water the couple was actually in. And from mid-March, leading right up until her murder, Heidi Ferkus began receiving calls from creditors. The very same kind of calls Rachel Ferkus had been recently receiving. An email correspondence between Heidi Ferkus and her husband Nick revealed that Heidi asked Nick to handle whatever issue there was at the time, relating to the constant phone calls. It just scares me that I got that call, and it has to be messing up our credit at this point, and it needs to be fixed. In another email, Heidi wrote the following to Nick. Three calls already this morning. Nick replied by saying that he would take care of it. Then, just a few days later, Heidi was killed. When they still weren't out of the home when March 22nd rolled around, the law firm sent a final letter, and a lockout date was set for April 9th, 2010. Three days before that lockout date on April 6th, Nick called the lawyers back and told them that his grandmother was on hospice and that she was dying. He pleaded with them to give him a few more weeks to vacate the home. Investigators also learned that both of Fergus's grandparents were alive and well at the time the communication took place there were never any records found of either one of them having been on any type of hospice care. As one last courtesy, the law firm extended the official lockout date to less than a month later on April 26, 2010. 
Heidi Furcus, was killed on April 25th. Back when the murder happened, Nick Furcus first told investigators that Heidi was fully aware of what was going on regarding their pending eviction and financial troubles. However, there's more evidence that says otherwise. From Heidi's own cell phone records, Facebook, and email accounts, not one mention of an eviction was ever found in her digital history. In fact, on March 11, 2010, a month and a half before she was killed, Heidi sent the following email to a friend. Wish we weren't tied down to our house so we could move somewhere fun. In the days leading up to her death, Heidi asked Nick several times about arranging a meeting with a realtor, a mutual friend who actually helped them close the deal on their house back in 2007. It's unclear what the nature of this requested meeting was supposed to be about, though Heidi did mention to a friend that she wanted to move, perhaps she was just seeing her and Nick's options at that point, or perhaps she was beginning to catch on right before she was killed. Had Heidi begun to realize how bad their financial situation actually was after receiving those collection calls? If so, it's possible she viewed selling the house as the only way to remedy their financial mess, the financial mess that Nick had created behind her back. This very well could have been why she wanted to speak to the realtor so urgently. Regardless, like all things, Nick assured his wife that he had it covered. He responded back to her in the email explaining that the meeting between himself, the realtor, and Heidi was scheduled for the following Monday. This email was sent just three days before Heidi was murdered. And for Heidi, that Monday never came. When authorities later spoke with that realtor friend, he claims he never spoke with Nick in the past year and that there never was a meeting planned. The same day that Nick lied in that email to his wife, a different text exchange between Heidi and another friend took place. It showed that the two girls had made plans to get pedicures that upcoming Sunday. The same Sunday Heidi would ultimately be murdered. In the text, Heidi suggested the two go to church together that same morning before their appointment. In addition, there was no record of Heidi's signature on any of the legal documents pertaining to the eviction, None of the law firm's reps ever contacted her. Everyone involved had worked through her husband, Nicholas Furcus. She was also scheduled to work the Monday of the supposed big move, because Heidi never requested the day off, though she had proactively requested other days off months in advance. The dynamic of Nick and Heidi's relationship was described as old-fashioned. Nick handled all of the finances, and that's just how it was, and Heidi trusted him. But all of those financial records that were available back in 2010 weren't enough to make an arrest. But almost a decade later, the conjoined efforts with the FBI and St. Paul's Homicide Unit would bring law enforcement one step closer to the probable cause they had needed all along to make an arrest. As she was building a case behind the scenes, Sergeant Nikki Sipes took advantage of technologies that simply weren't available when this murder took place all these years before. Resources that would play a monumental role in bringing this case to closure. All of the 911 calls from the morning of April 25, 2010, were sent off to the FBI crime lab in Quantico, Virginia. They were scrubbed and reanalyzed. And authorities were now able to hear more clearly something they had not heard back then. Nick said he wrestled the intruder for the shotgun moments before it went off accidentally. But listen to that section of the call again. 
If you listen closely, you notice there's no background noise, meaning there's no sound of a struggle heard on the call. Heidi is heard speaking quietly yet calmly before the shotgun blast goes off, followed by her scream. But that's it. Just the way she was speaking to dispatch, it appears that she was taken by complete surprise when that fatal shot rang out. Investigators realized this likely meant that if someone else was in the home wrestling the gun away from her husband, they would have heard it. And the lack of activity on the call would wind up being pivotal in this case, as it tells a completely different story than the one Nick Ferkus had claimed all along. In the year 2020, a three-dimensional rendering was created of the crime scene, another forensic advancement that had come quite a long way since its predecessor, aka the Sony Handycam used some 10 years before. Investigators accessed the home on Minnehaha Avenue one last time to take a 360-degree digital scan of the old crime scene. Forensic analysts then used the -the state-of-the-art laser scans to gain an entirely new perspective. More specifically, the projected pathway that each shotgun blast took 11 years before. According to law enforcement, the biggest revelation was that the shotgun was not fired at the angle in which Nick Ferkus said it was when Heidi was killed. It always maintained that the gun was pressed against his chest horizontally during the struggle when it was discharged. Using the virtual model of photographs of the shotgun pellet markings and even a live stand-in, They were able to determine that the weapon was raised much higher than chest level when Heidi was shot. The measurements of the entry wound also suggest that the weapon may have even been shouldered, aimed, and intentionally fired when Heidi Ferkus was shot in the back. The model also suggested that if the so-called intruder were actually wrestling with Nick when the gun went off, they both would have been standing in the foyer directly next to or literally in the spot where the small table was the contents on top of which were left completely undisturbed. Further, by comparing Heidi's 911 call with Nick's later call, they were able to determine that they were able to hear the sounds of police arriving at the home and coming through the front door in the kitchen on Nick's call. While there were no discernible sounds of any type of struggle or home intruder entering the home during Heidi's from the exact same cell phone. Using all of this evidence, new and old, collected over the span of 11 long years, Sergeant Nicole Sipes of the St. Paul Police filed her official probable cause warrant, and it was signed by a judge on May 17, 2021. Two days later, in the early morning hours of May 19, 38-year-old Nicholas Ferkus was arrested at his home and charged with second-degree murder. It's been 4,043 days since Heidi was shot and killed in her own home more than 11 years ago. And I can say with absolute certainty that someone in the St. Paul Police Department thought about her, her family, and this case each and every day. Heidi was a young woman just beginning her life with so much promise, so much possibility, so much to live for. Shot and killed in her own home, a place where she deserved to feel and she deserved to be safe. This is a tragic case that touches us all deeply. That's why we never quit. We never closed it. We never stopped working it, looking at evidence, searching for evidence with determination, ultimately to get to the truth. 
On May 20, 2021, members of the St. Paul Police Department, the FBI, and the Ramsey County Attorney's Office held a public press conference to announce the long-awaited arrest in Heidi Ferkus's now 11-year cold case. Many of the original investigators on this case had either long ago retired or been reassigned. And Nicole Sipes was completely new to the case, and she became a homicide detective in 2019. During the 18 months she dedicated to seeking justice for Heidi Ferkus, Sipes was said to have been working up to 25 other cases at the same time. Before announcing the details of the arrest and the charges, St. Paul Police Chief Todd Axtell praised Sergeant Nikki Sipes for her hard work and persistence in seeking justice for Heidi. Then 18 months ago, Sergeant Nikki Sipes picked it up and re-examined every piece of this case, every word and every fact. Where's Nikki? Nikki, thank you so much. Appreciate your hard work, your exceptional service to us all. Eventually, Senior Commander Bryant Gaydon with the St. Paul Police Department's Homicide Unit would also stand at the podium and read aloud a written statement from Heidi's parents. We are extremely grateful for all those who have worked so hard and long to get the case to this point, and also for everyone who has prayed and stood beside us all these years. We are hopeful that these charges will finally bring out the truth and result in justice. For Heidi, even though we know we can't have her back, we believe Heidi would want us to have the truth. God is honored by the truth. Heidi's life and memory is further honored by the truth. From Heidi's family, thank you. When the floor was open for questions, a local journalist asked Sergeant Sipes what drew her to this unsolved homicide in the first place. She explained why solving it was so important, not only professionally, but on a personal level as well. I think the fact that we had a victim that there had never been any justice for and a family that was left behind to wonder what happened and why they have this loss. And that was what spoke to me about the case. The distinctly celebratory atmosphere of the press conference on May 20th was shattered when, incredibly, just days after he was taken into police custody and charged with second-degree murder, habitually poor money manager Nicholas Ferkus somehow posted his $1 million bail. He then surrendered his passport and walked out of the Ramsey County Jail a free man once again. Only this time, his freedom was temporary. Months later, his charges were updated, and in September of 2021, a grand jury indicted him on one additional count of premeditated first-degree murder. He was soon taken back behind bars and subsequently held on a new $3 million bond. In February of 2023, Nicholas Ferkus would stand trial for the murder of his late wife, Heidi, 13 long years after she was killed inside of their St. Paul, Minnesota home. It was the prosecution's theory that Heidi simply came too close to revealing Nick's dark secret about their finances, and he chose to kill her before she could expose him. Instead of being humiliated and denounced by friends, family, and the church, Nick Ferkus would rather murder his wife to make it look like a home invasion gone wrong, in turn becoming a victim himself, and to confront the reality of their crumbling finances. After Heidi's tragic murder, the 
their financial troubles would quickly fade into the periphery, and Nick Ferkus would be seen as the grieving widower, and not an economic failure. The state's argument was that Nicholas Ferkus shot his wife in the back while she was on the phone with 911, and that he staged the crime scene and then shot himself before calling 911 a few moments later. The defense contested this argument, stating that their client wouldn't have had enough time to do so given the short window between Heidi's 911 call and his own approximately 65 seconds later. The state would provide a timed demonstration for the jury. In the courtroom, the prosecutor acted out what they believed were Nick Ferkus's exact movements, which included firing the shotgun at Heidi as her back was turned. Nick then walking the short distance to her body, positioning her remains to where her feet now faced the entryway, and then walking to the front door before bracing his leg against the wall and firing one round into his own left thigh. At the end of this reenactment conducted at trial, there were still seconds left on the clock, suggesting that Nick Ferkus had more than enough time to shoot his wife and then himself between the two 911 calls. In addition, the state played the 2010 video in court where investigators recreated the door handle shaking two days after Heidi was killed, the noise made by the intruder that Nick claimed woke him up. As described earlier in the episode, the camera in that police video is held from where Nick said Heidi was standing when she dialed 911. The tape was played for the jury, proving that the sound of the doorknob shaking was picked up on the video, but not on Heidi's 911 call. The two audio examples were then played back to back, suggesting that had someone actually been breaking in, it would have been captured on Heidi's 911 call just as it was on the video. The defense, on the other hand, would present photographs of the damaged door jam, markings which, according to them, were consistent with a screwdriver having been used during the break-in. Ferkus's lawyers pointed out that of all of the screwdrivers seized by authorities from their house, as well as the ones found in the defendant's car, none of those tools were consistent with the markings found on the door. A locksmith would then testify for the prosecution. This individual had analyzed several burglary scenes in the past, and it was his professional opinion that it was extremely rare to see a deadbolt untampered with as a result of breaking and entering, and that out of all of the similar crime scenes he had witnessed himself, he'd never in fact seen a door with such little damage. In regards to the three-dimensional model, the defense claimed that St. Paul homicide detectives simply presented their theory of what happened to the FBI, who in turn wrongfully created a biased digital rendering based around the belief and not physical evidence. Ferkus's lawyer posed the question, why was a 3D rendering not built around what Nick Ferkus told the police? During cross-examination, Suzanne Brown of the FBI's Minneapolis office responded by stating that the model was created based on verified evidence, which included the 911 calls, crime scene photographs, as well as the autopsy report and police interviews. On February 10th, 2023, after an 11-day trial and four hours of deliberation, Nicholas Ferkus was found guilty of first- and second-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing later that April, victim impact statements were read aloud. Heidi Ferkus's brother Peter spoke on the family's behalf, expressing their gratitude that justice had finally been served, though they were still beside themselves in grief over the loss of their Heidi. Every birthday, every holiday, 
each and every family gathering, we recount our memories of Heidi over and over and over again. And while there are plenty of good ones, the evil end to her story has always cast a shadow over what would otherwise be bright. Nicholas Ferkus's father, Steve, also spoke, using the opportunity to defend his son as he had since the very beginning. For all of us, it is impossible that Nick could ever have done what he is accused of doing. We believe him, and we believe in his innocence. Eventually, Nicholas Ferkus was also given the opportunity to speak. He never wavered and proclaimed his innocence right up until the very end. While I understand the jury's verdict and the sentence you must give, I do maintain and will maintain to my dying breath my innocence of this crime. Seated at a table in the front of the courtroom, adorned in a wrinkled, untucked denim button-up shirt, Nicholas Ferkus concluded his statement by saying, quote, My body is condemned to serve for another man's crime, but my soul is free. Bravo. Very poetic, Nicholas. Shortly after his riveting speech, Nicholas James Ferkus would close his eyes as the judge uttered the six words that would forever alter his existence. Life without the possibility of parole. Nicholas Ferkus says that whoever killed his wife Heidi is still out there to this day, that a lot of his friends and family still believe him. The jury, on the other hand, ultimately agreed with the prosecution that there was no black man wearing a hooded sweatshirt inside of his and Heidi's home that morning, only Nicholas Ferkus standing behind his then-wife with a shotgun. They unanimously decided that Ferkus was a compulsive spender and a pathological liar, who used his influence and reputation as a man of God to manipulate those around him. He lied to his wife Heidi for many years until he simply couldn't any longer. He ultimately decided to kill her as a way to keep that truth hidden and was able to go on and live an entirely new life afterward for over a decade. It's hard not to think this could have somehow ended even more horribly than it already did. Had his second wife, Rachel, not up and left Nick Ferkus when she found the unpaid property tax notice in the mail. Who knows what might have happened. Rachel currently owns a small business in Minneapolis, a makeup company that donates 10% of their earnings to anti-human trafficking organizations. She's gone on record to say that she can't believe she ever married someone who killed their wife, revealing that she has since found solace through it all in her three children perhaps the only true gift Nicholas Ferkus has ever given to anyone. It's pretty amazing how long a conviction took in this case. For whatever reason, law enforcement didn't feel they had enough evidence to make an arrest until their case was strengthened by the efforts of Sergeant Nicole Sipes and the FBI over a decade later. One aspect of this senseless murder, however, that remains unclear was if Nick Ferkus did try to pin his wife's murder on someone else a man who had been all over the news for several burglaries at the time Heidi was killed, Michael Pye. He certainly would have been an easy scapegoat, but Pye is no longer behind bars and says he's turned his life around. And it's his belief that Nick Ferkus did indeed try to set him up by providing an independent sketch artist with a vivid description of one of his many mugshots. Pye says if he wasn't in jail at the time of the killing, he more than likely would be the one serving a life sentence for a murder he didn't commit, and that Nicholas Spurkus would still be a free man to this very day. If I wouldn't have been locked up, I would have had a murder case. I would have had a murder case, even though I never shot nobody, period, you know. I'm proud of going to prison because of 
I wouldn't have a relationship with God that I got right now today if I wouldn't have went to prison. I guess he just didn't keep up with the news to see that I had got locked up already.